Hey guys, welcome back. This week's guest is Kat Varga. She's a jeweler and creator and now a part owner of Brooklyn Vintage Company, a vintage store located in the Bushwick neighborhood of Brooklyn. Uh, Kat and I met through my best friend Chris several years ago and what I took from our conversation is that Kat is a hustler. We talk about early days growing up in Queens, raised by two glamorous women, her mother and her grandmother, getting fired from her job selling chocolates, the topic of wabi-sabi yet again comes up, and we discuss industry at large with regards to waste, as well as the importance of products having a soul, and even the contribution of a third place and how that can have an effect on a community. We recorded this one on their first week of being open, so there was a buzz in the air, and though I've opened my share of new stores in my career, there's something special about being an onlooker to a friend's new store opening. They have a very open storefront, so as a result, there's a tiny bit of New York City traffic and occasional background conversation going on, but I really feel like it adds an additional element to this episode, so I'm excited for you to hear it. I hope you guys enjoy it. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Kat Varga, welcome to the podcast. Why, thank you. Lovely to be here. (laughs) <laughs> oh man i don't it's it's funny to interview a friend because sometimes it's like hard to figure out where to start other than your start so why don't we just start there uh where did you grow up uh queens sunnyside new york i am from the sunny side of the street so it's a it's a cute little very multi-culty neighborhood very close to manhattan uh you know, basically nice middle working class neighborhood. You know, right. Very like, uh, I always tell people as soon as they to ask me where I've grown up, where I grew up was that it was probably the most culturally diverse place. I mean, even if you did research now on Queens, it says it's one of the most culturally diverse places virtually in the world. Really? It's crazy. So, I mean, just literally a mix of everything. Everything. In our, in our elementary school, they would have this... uh not it was basically like a national pride day like come in your native dress day and i think we represented i don't know 50 countries and it wasn't a large elementary school we had everybody and you know growing up in an apartment building they had like smells of all the different foods of the cuisines that the the families were cooking and just around constantly indian and korean and there's Italians and Jewish and Irish. It's Greek people. It's all me- a whole mix. It was amazing. Wow. It was That's fun. insane. Yeah, it was good. It was good. That's uh, very different than the area I grew up in, <laughs> in North Carolina, <laughs> which was uh, very monochromatic. Very monochromatic. Yes. <laughs> to yep. put it diplomatically. Got you. Um, well, that's cool. What did your parents do? Um, my mom basically was a single mom, you know, we, uh, my parents broke up when I was pretty young. So my mom, you know, was just working a lot and my grandmother basically raised us, you know, she worked different, uh, different jobs day and night. Actually, she was, she worked on one of the original computers for Bloomingdale's. She was a super fast typer and they call it key punch machines. I'm not sure. They're, they look like these very long index cards and they would manually punch in the sales data oh, yeah, to yeah. generate reports. And so she would do that at night. And we're, we're dating ourselves. But yeah, I actually do remember what that looked sorry. like. Sorry. I've, <laughs> I've seen photos. Yeah. 
That's so, so funny. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. Yeah, basically, she worked. She worked a lot. Trying so, to make it happen. you. Were, I mean, you're a very creative individual. You've done jewelry in your past. What were some of the things you used to do as a kid? Were you into jewelry early on, or like what got you into that? My my mom was a very stylish lady. Is a very stylish lady, you know, working in in the workforce. She always got all dolled up. Even my grandmother, you know, who basically raised us, her mother, very, you know, she got up in the morning and she put earrings on and lipstick and then she made the coffee. She did that, you know, for her husband and, you know, throughout her marriage and she just kept it up till she was like 82 when she passed. So my mom was really stylish, always very, even on, you know, a shoestring budget, always managed to look like, a million dollars that's amazing Be, like I, i'm not just saying it because she's my mom but stunning elegant graceful woman amazing that's so awesome. i think i i always was uh i always admired her for that for her style um so i guess it rubbed off on me that's really sweet um yeah so you know i had odd jobs i've worked since i was a kid you know just What'd paper you do? routes yeah and, walked all the old ladies dogs in my apartment building and went food shopping for them and did their laundry and you know things so like that you're kind of a hustler then even. oh man hustle yeah make it happen i definitely yep and then when i got old enough to work retail i think i've sold every product category on the planet what were some of the early jobs oh uh, my gosh i've sold uh so you're talking 15 years old 16 years old oh yeah. Like what, yeah where were you working then um, I, I've been I've been a nanny. Uh, I've I sold futons. I've sold um, chocolates. Uh, I've sold what else? Swe- sweaters like a Benetton. I did that for a long time. Re- and then women's clothing and just yeah, just constantly jewelry stores, obviously. Yeah. So just anything, but always in sort of a retail store format. Or was it out to like selling chocolates? Was that door to door? Was that, that in like was, a chocolate store? That was in a chocolate store. Oh, wow. So you've the always The only job been... I've ever really gotten fired from. You got fired from the chocolate store? I got store? fired. Yeah, which is amazing because it was a very small store and I was restocking the chocolate covered cherries from the bulk box that they come in to the nice display tray. Mm-hmm. And it was such a close quarters little store. I, I knocked the box, the bulk box on the floor and I threw them out. Instead of putting them in the tray. And I got fired for that. You got fired for being sanitary. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So. So that university, did you go to school? I went to FIT, Fashion okay. Institute of Technology. What did you study? Um, I started out as a fashion, fashion buying and merchandising major. I did go to a specialized high school in New York City if you live within the five boroughs. You can take a test to get into a specialized high school so you can get a jump start on, you know, a specific course study. Um, So I went to a marketing high school, which was just a very overview. It wasn't industry specific. Um, So then my first day of high school, my first day at FIT, I was going to be, I thought, studying the specifics of marketing in fashion. And they started back at the basics. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, I'm long past this. I did that in high school. Give right. me a test. Yeah. Something. And they, they wouldn't they wouldn't let me. No one teaches it like we here do it here at FIT. So, so you couldn't, like, place out like you could with, like, a no. language, for example. No. You just take the Spanish test and you're on your way. Couldn't do it. So 
my second semester, I just took all my liberal arts and got my electives out of the way till I, you know, was going to figure out what to do. And one of my electives I decided to take was a jewelry design course. Because oh, I saw cool. pretty pictures in the hallway of the students' work. I didn't, I couldn't draw a straight line. I was like, I could do that. I don't know what made me think that. Um, so I took a jewelry design course, and then I and I transferred my major to jewelry the next the next year. It's a two year course. It's a you get an associates of applied science, an AAS mm-hmm. uh, degree. Mm-hmm. Then they have a bachelor's, and then to your master's, which it's it they turn it into like a full on restoration sort of curriculum so you learn how to fix bronze statues and ceramic plates fantastic in my spare time i would love to learn how to do that i was need you know i'm hustler i just need to get out and get into the workforce as a jeweler so it's almost like a a micro version of like a fabricator oh yeah yeah basically just like on a smaller scale yep so uh when i was in fit you need to do an internship before you can graduate and I lucked out and I worked I was an intern at a very small jewelry studio right across the street from school and he hired me he hired me right out of school and I worked for him for a little while he ended up closing his business but I, I just kind of started rolling right into it he was a fine jewelry guy so what were you doing specifically for him oh man you know all the grunt work you know, cleaning castings and cutting sprues. You know, when you cast stuff, there's like that channel where that the metal flows. Cutting those off, filing them. But he was he was really good. He was a very he was a he was a stickler for quality. Um, like if you look at a coin, if something's perfectly flat, perfectly flat. If you tilt it in a way where there's a reflection, the entire surface needed to be reflective in one shot. Right. And if it didn't, you had to start all over. So you hear about this a lot, actually, in watchmaking. Oh, yeah, so exactly. Like, you know, the black polish, they'll call it. Yes. Because it's so perfectly polished that it turns black. Yep, yep. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. That you learn that through jewelry as well. Oh, yeah. Through his meticulous... Uh, yep. I had, a, I had a really great... I had good teachers in FIT. One was really amazing this way. And then, thankfully, the guy that I first worked for, he was as meticulous. So right. I, I learned a lot. Um, and then I realized I didn't want to do that anymore. Right. I want to discover different aspects of the jewelry industry. So I started working for a high-end costume jewelry company. I never really wanted to make 500 of anything. Right. Um, so I you like the specificity. The d- yeah. One small of, batch type of really focused. That was always my my plan to to be more small batched and you know nothing mass produced out of a foreign country necessarily but i ended up going down that road just one job led to another led to another where i was exposed to that and then silver i did silver jewelry for many many years for different companies in new york got to travel a lot when you were bouncing around like what were some of the companies you worked for um i worked for a company called argento vivo um, that was the in-house branded name of a sterling silver company called SKF. Um, we imported a lot from Mexico. I took a lot of trips to Tosco. Highly recommended destination. Really? Why? Cute mountain town. You, you fly into Mexico City and then you basically drive in a circle going up and up to the top of this fantastic old mountain to the, to the plateau of Tosco, which is now the silver capital. It used to be Oaxaca originally 
somehow or another got moved to Tosco. It's just a beautiful, quaint. It's hilly up there. It's, it's you know, all cobblestone and brick and old, one of the super, super old ca- um, church cathedrals in the middle of the square. It's just beautiful. It's That's amazing. Cool. Um, it's a it's a cottage industry, right? So there's no factories per se. There are small shops with shop owners. Um, we would fax orders from New York with pictures and specific details of the, the items that we would need made. And, you know, they'd call the guy that made that ring and say, come, I have an order for 500 rings. And they'd give him grain silver and he'd take it home. And two weeks later, he'd come back with, you know, the rings that you wanted. In two weeks, 500. Or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they had all these. turnaround. I mean, all things it considered. It can be. Yeah. It can be. But if that one guy got sick. Oh, right. You're and you behind gave it to somebody ball. else, it, you know, the design would come back differently. Which is fine if you like that handmade look. But if once you start selling to like a Macy's where their QC is pretty stringent. or they're, tries s- they're selling consistency. Right. right. You know, and so the, the inconsistencies, even though they liked the handmade aspect and they would sell it as handmade, they didn't like the inconsistency. And it was they had a very small window of what was acceptable. So it's, it's so interesting because like that's so cultural. Yeah. You know, like if you go over to Japan, they've got, you know, philosophy, wabi sabi, which is there's beauty and imperfection. And when you make something by hand, it's beautiful. Right. The the idiosyncrasies and the imperfections, if you will, by our take. Right. Are actually uh, marks of beauty over there. So it's just interesting how cultural. Totally. Yeah. Like related that is. Uh, and it's funny because we would for for different price reasons and and quite frankly volume if we got a huge huge order with a very short turnaround time we would try to we would send it to china um and they would they would try to figure out how to replicate something to make it look like it was handmade um and generally they did okay hammer you know hammering when you hammer when you make something by i mean and and there's a particular pattern in hammering right Right, um so they created a die that had that modeled texture to it so they would die they would they would they would have this die that would hammer down in one shot what would supposed to mimic someone hundreds of taps hundreds of taps well, interesting that's fine and then they would cast that piece right and then duplicate it accordingly so then you have thousands of pieces that have the same hammered texture exactly so you can't you know so the consistency was there the consistency was there the volume they were able to do fine um but you know it it just lacked that feeling it had that it, it just lacked a soul now, were they made from the same materials, oh, though? Oh, yeah. Okay, so, yeah. like, the weight wouldn't be changed. No, we, we would get you know, things like that, on like, weights because in silver, the price of something's based on weight. So right, exactly. They had to, they so, had like, to. if you're making something out of platinum versus white gold, clearly the platinum's going to be heavier. So they weren't scrimping on oh, materials no, no. necessarily. No. And, like, even the polishing, right? So let's say you did make this by hand as they do in Mexico, and then they hand polish it, 
I can look at a piece and say, oh, that was that was machine hammered and that was hand polished versus tumble polished. There's little things that that make a big difference. Sure. It, I don't know. If you know what you're looking at, you can spot the difference. It's it's to me. It's not that hard. Right. You could right. you could you Your could face. teach anybody what kind of sort of what the yeah. difference is. Um, I think to the to the lay person, if you were to put two next to each other, I think it could speak. It'll just speak to you. Like, what, which one do you like better, A or B? And someone will say, I don't know why, but I like B better. Interesting. Huh. And and it just it translates. It translates. It's a fingerprint, right? It's a right. fingerprint. Um, and that's what I think people like and can you know relate to. Um, which is could, could bring me to a whole other topic of like the upcycling thing, which is why I love vintage and trying to not get into like the waste of the industries of jewelry industry and the fashion industry and why I love vintage and why I love upcycling people, artists that, you know, take things by hand and upcycle it. They repair denim by hand or, oh, it, sure. you know, it, it has a, it has a soul. They put their fingerprint on it. Um, and I feel like, generally the culture is slowly turning to want that fingerprint do you think it's product based because of the fingerprint like quality in quote um or do you think it's environmentally charged like less waste right less production this stuff's already made you don't need new you know what i mean i think I think for the consumer, it's starting from they don't want to look like everybody else. I think they're <clears throat> in commercials and things you can see there is this push for people to be individuals. Apple, right, has this whole it being individual and Nike, you know, we're individuals. And so I, I love the fact that people are being encouraged to be unique. Right. Um, to embrace themselves, their supposed, uh, you know, lesser, their things that make them supposedly imperfect or lesser, but that's what makes them beautiful. Wabi-sabi. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So I think as a culture, it is shifting, yes, because of the environmental reasons, but also they don't want to look like everybody else. Sure. You know? Yeah. They really don't. And and I do, you know, I was reading something in a in a fa- in a blog that I get, uh, Business of Fashion. They write articles. Yeah. It's, it's it's you know, it's a lot of it's industry gossip. Who's in, who's out, who's head of, you know, Raph Simmons is in and out. Um they did do an art they po- I posted on my Instagram that they wrote a whole article that <clears throat> they were they were saying that vintage or upcycled fashion was going to supersede fast fashion by like 2022 or 2024 no kidding that's i mean that's a an enormous statement and they're freaking out you're looking at things like uniqlo like h&m all these brands and and uh and businesses that are fast fashion businesses like that industry was basically and zara you know exactly well yes well capsule you know a lot of a lot of companies started doing these like capsule collections because it's a limited edition and people wanted it because there's fewer and they're gonna like they're not gonna look like 
everybody else. A few, sure. you know, I was in a, what was it, a Saks off Fifth, one of the major retail discount mm -hmm. stores, sure. checking it out. And they had a whole case of vintage Louis Vuitton. You know, it's crazy. Yeah, and if I you go like, in. Am I seeing this correctly? And yeah. it wasn't even in the main store. It was in the discount aspect. Yep. And I was like, they are crapping a brick. Yeah. Because they know people are selling the vintage of the designer. Yeah, you know, there's been this huge uptick. Uh, I have a friend who has a business that's online. It's like pre-owned luxury goods it's buy sell trade um <laughs> we should talk maybe emily emily you might know emily emily dang she used to live here she's uh in the bay area now cool um one of one of my dearest friends you know uh Besides i could certainly introduce you guys of course <laughs> I, i'm shocked you guys don't already know maybe, each other because emily knows my best friend chris as well so which i know you through chris that's right so um yeah similar circles but now divided by 3000 miles but uh I'll introduce you guys for sure um hers is strictly online but then they started to partner actually with vintage stores and I know just because I'm such a watch nut like Barney's and places like that carry vintage Rolex oh yeah or you know they've painted the dial or you know whatever in yeah. insert variety here but yeah. I didn't realize places like Off Fifth are doing this. Like that's that's a major move. Major. Barney's has had a good estate jewelry department for a long time. I've always drooled over those cases. Bergdorf. Personally, Bergdorf. as well. Actually, yeah. yeah now that I, I think about it. I think they're they're taking that business model and and translating it into other product categories. And you know, ex handbags is the most obvious next step sure it's not going to stop there i mean if you have a woman that has 50 handbags how beat up could one be you know it's got to be probably in fairly decent shape like the guy who has 50 watches right you know well they it's smart and well they're made well so they're made pretty much you know to be a lot more durable than a lot of the other fast fashion items which are made they're ma and and they're made to be disposable. Well, and they chase trends rather than create trends. But you can also chase a trend and do it with with some sense of quality. Sure. They don't want that. No, that's fair. They want they want it to wear out so that you buy more. Buy more. Right. And and Well, the, hence the whole buy less, buy better. I'll I'll say something interesting which speaks to the bigger shift culturally and how I think the industry is really starting to get nervous about vintage. Um, opening a store, you have to get licensed. You know, you, you put all your legal particulars together. And uh, there is a, a license that you need to get. And some people have that one they, that they don't have it's similar to like you used to see back in the day you know if you see people selling stuff on the street they, they used to be like a street vendors license that some people got and some people didn't have sure so hot dog stands exactly you, know, you got a street license you need a license yeah. for everything yeah food you know um so we've been hearing a lot from brooklyn specific other vintage retail stores that they are cracking down 
they are getting spot injected, inspected, heavily fined for like the slightest of infringement. And I think quite, I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist or anything, but I think that people are getting very nervous about how big vintage is getting corporate America in New York, let's just say. Interesting. So that's more product focused, assortment focused. So if you're carrying like a fake bag, you're saying, or no, just anything, anything, how you're supposed to have your, uh, signage, how you're supposed to price things, how you, what you need to write on the ticket. Like there, it's very, very specific. Uh, because people are really vague on their tickets. Um, yeah. Is it like being cash only in a restaurant where you don't, if, if you're not so specific, then maybe your sales quote unquote weren't as high as they were. I, I think, I think that they're trying. One of the things that they say in some of the guidelines that I've read is that, oh, each, each hang tag is supposed to say vintage each hang tag. Every single because people think they're buying new product. I mean, if you walk into a store that says Brooklyn Vintage, I guess you should assume that everything is vintage, and it is. Or it's, I mean, vintage. We won't get into specifics of what's right. considered vintage yeah, exactly. versus antique. Sure. But this, you know, Department of Consumer Affairs makes you supposedly have vintage on every single piece. You have a you have a two millimeter little diamond stud. Yeah, how you supposed Where to write in the that, hell yeah. are you supposed to put that? Yeah, well, a hang to, tag, I guess. Yeah, you have to. They they say they're supposed to have vintage or signs next to it or something on know. everything in your store. So anyway, like this, I'm saying you could have thousands of items in your store, and they'll they'll come, and they're starting to crack down on finding like little the smallest infringements, and then the fines are huge. Wow. Well, getting back to kind of how you made your way to today and owning Brooklyn Vintage Company. Um, co-owner. Co-owner. I yes, can't take you, all the credit. you and Michael. Right. <laughs> and yeah. the other, we have another Michael. Oh. Yeah, MCM, Mike. like mid-century modern. That's what I tell people. It's Michael Cat Michael. Okay. It's easy to remember. I'll say I'm learning. See? I'll get there. You got it. <laughs> so, um, we almost called the business MCM, but we, then we said, uh oh, what if MCM that brand. goes out of business yeah, yeah. and the brand, yeah. you know, mid century modern or MCM bags, you know, once they become not trendy anymore, then our name becomes very passe. But yes. <laughs> so, you were doing these jewelry jobs, right? And mm. then you ended up at AX. Yep. Right, which is how you met my best friend Chris. Yep. What were you doing for AX? Like, when did you start there? Like, how did that? Were you at another large retailer prior to that, or? I was at a large. I was at a big uh, silver jewelry manufacturing job. Um, I was basically doing, overseeing all of the design, a lot of the production. I was also like a, a, a sales manager. Um, because I was designing so much private label, the clients would want to meet with me. Obviously, as a designer, I'd make things for them specifically. It, you know, Ann Taylor, Macy's, Banana Republic, you run down the line. Um, so it was a lot of sales, and it was, it, was, it was a lot. It was a lot, and it was just seven years, and it, I learned a lot, um, but it was just, it was a lot. It was a lot of work and very stressful. Successful, um, and I just, I was done. Uh, and then Stefan 
my friend who I'd met in the jewelry, we were doing jewelry together. He was working for Armani Exchange doing denim. And he said, you know, I convinced AX that they should be doing jewelry. And I've been dabbling a little things here and there, but they're ready to go full force. I can't do it all myself. So would you come freelance and help me slowly grow the business into like a serious product category? A category, yeah. Yeah. So I started three days a week, and then it was four days a week, and then it was five days a week, and it was growing, and it was growing, and then he left. Oh, what was I there for? Seven years. So you were freelance. Does that mean you were working from your house? No, I would, I would go on site. I was okay, on site. so you were in the office. Yeah, I was in the office. We'd go sourcing at different showrooms and work with different, corresponding with China and whatever. Or the, we had agents in Hong Kong you know, that would represent you for the different factories throughout sure. Asia. yep. Um, so yeah, we were there. Yeah. It just, and it just kept going and going and going and got more and more successful. successful. Yeah. Um, I felt like it kind of reached a plateau. Uh, you know, there were a lot of changes happening at AX, a lot of different creative directors, a lot of different, um, just corporate direction on what they were trying to focus on. Well, even ownership changed hands, right? Ownership. Yeah. The percentages of the ownerships and the ownerships changed hands and, Ultimately, uh, when Mr. Armani ended up buying back 100% of the company, uh, he decided he didn't want to do jewelry. Oh, is that right? Yeah. And that was your exit? Yes. I was also, I was also doing all the trim. Interesting. So I was doing freelance. I was like full, basically full-time freelance for jewelry, and they wanted me to go full-time, and, uh, and I gave them a number, and they said, well, in order to legitimize that number, we need to basically give you a whole other job. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> so I said, like I director said, level or yeah. something. Yeah. So I tried it. And I so said, you okay. spent all those years, like, so then you weren't even capitalizing on benefits or anything? Then. Yeah, no. Interesting. <laughs> what, why would you do that? Oh, I, you know. For flexibility or? Yeah, because I came out of a very stressful full-time, very, very, like 50, 60 hour full-time job. Sure. Beforehand. So I was like, I'm just going to cruise. I'm just going to make some jewelry three days a week. And then, so I kind of rode that wave. I mean, it, it grew to something bigger eventually, pretty swiftly. In the last couple of years doing trim and jewelry, that was, that was a lot. That was, that was hardcore. I ended up getting an assistant, which was great. Um, so yeah, that's how I ended up transitioning into doing AX. Right. Yeah, it was good. But then uh, ultimately they end up giving trim to someone. They actually end up moving all the trim handling to Hong Kong. So, so yeah. nobody local, nobody local. Yeah. So what year was that? When did you leave AX? S I don't know. Six years ago at this point. Has it been it's that been, long? I think so. Yeah. I took a lot of time off after that too. Cause it got pretty intense towards the end of that as well. It's a lot of work. Yeah. I don't know why everywhere I you go, get burn just, out. I, get, I get a lot of work. Well, you got a New York work ethic. It's pretty common, though, no? Corporately, they, people It's common tend in to, New York. Is it? I, f I find that companies tend to uh, give as much work as they possibly can to people with the least amount of help. Yeah. I'd no. say that's pretty fair to say. Economically. Especially, like, in a corporate setting. Oh, yeah. They want as big of a bang for their buck as they can get. Exactly. Exactly. So then I was just kind of chilling out after I was kind of burned out. Then, you know, I went to Florida, my mom, hanging out with my mom, taking care of her, getting her situated. And what took her to Florida? Oh, she moved there years ago. She's just getting older. You know, my brothers are married and have kids and stuff. And they live down there. 
They live up here. Oh. In Jersey and Queens and stuff and subs. So she didn't want to stay close to them? Oh, no, no. She hates the cold weather. <laughs> oh, so it's weather related, obviously. Because the style diva would like to wear uh, suede mules in the snow <laughs> to go to work. And she'd have her kids walk her through the snow to the bus stop to go to work in her suede mules because she had to look nice. Yeah. She said, I'm done. She's like, I'm done with that. That's, she's all good. You know, she had, she'd married the second time and she was what, happy. What part of Florida is she in? Naples. Oh, of course. West Coast. Of course. You know yeah. Naples. Yeah. Half yeah. of Naples is New York move south. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Oh, that's so, cool. Yeah. So she's down in Florida. Yeah. So I was chilling out down there. So you I hung was like, out I with gotta mom. go. Mom needs me. That's right. What's the temperature in New York? No, no, no. I can't come home yet. Right. <laughs> right. But then when did you come back full time? know a couple months ago no i i would go every year i would go down for christmas and then i one year i stayed two months next year i stayed three months next year i stayed four months you know right. she get, got older and i got more comfortable with it i was in an open air market so i was in bushwick um i would open my open air market in spring and summer and then christmas eve or the day before christmas i would shut it down and then go down be with her for the holidays sure and through the winter she called me a snowbird this week's episode is brought to you by passion fine jewelry located in solana beach california where owners Jana and tim jackson welcome you into their living room like store carrying a wide range of independent watches and variety of fine jewelry tim is gia certified and they also have a goldsmith in-house as part of their staff visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information and if you're ever in Southern California, please make it a point to visit the store. You can also find a wealth of information via Tim's blog, independentintime.com. Of course, this is also brought to you by Standard H. Standard-h.com is where you'll find our online shop providing branded merchandise to support the podcast. And if you subscribe to our email list, you'll be one of the many insiders receiving exclusive special offers. Now back to the conversation with Kat. What were you selling at open air market? Jewelry. Just jewelry. Jewelry, handbags. And then you kind of started to diversify, right? Yep. Started carrying a wider range of assortment. Mostly accessories. And then I started carrying a few like knickknacks here and there because Christmas was coming and it made like for nice giftables. Sure. So I started expanding. It's in a shipping container. I, I rented a shipping container within a flea market situation. Eight by 10 shipping container and i i decked that i decked it out you never saw pictures of it i, I saw it. yeah i, th- I saw it's pictures. on my instagram yeah, yeah, the yeah. early ones yeah. um because i didn't want to set up and be in the cold it was still cold but i just space to heater then you had electric obviously right access i had electric i uh i i spoke to the neighbor and i said hey if i throw you a couple bucks can i can can i run an extension cord from your basement and he said sure because I was looking into buying or renting um, a generator. I didn't have a car. How the hell was I going to get gas to gas the thing up? They're expensive. So I was like, this is, there's got to be a better way. And I saw this Christmas tree vendor. And I was like, dude, what kind of generator do you have? It's so quiet. He goes, no, dude. He's like, I run my line from these people right over here. I go, that's genius. So the next day, I rent, I think for two days, I rented a generator from Home Depot. Not cheap. 
And then I took a cab to the gas station. Hustler. I took a right. cab to the gas station with the gas tank to fill it up. Fill it. Yeah. It's just, I said, there's got to be a better way. Yeah, so nightmare. Next, dude, the next day I was knocking on that guy's door. You returned the generator at Home Depot and bought an extension cord. Damn right. <laughs> that's right. The best extension cord I ever bought. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. It was that's good. amazing. So, uh, you know, th- that was great. I mean, I really enjoyed the experience. I loved designing the interior of it. You know, it's shipping containers are magnets, right? That's how they get them on and off the freight, the liners, the boats to that cross the ocean. So I was thinking to my, I was talking to my brother, how am I going to decorate this thing? I can't drill into it because they're airtight, right? They don't leak because if you drill into it, then it rains and it leaks. He goes, you put everything up with magnets because my brother does lighting in the film industry. Oh, cool. Sound design and lighting design. He goes, Here in the city? Yeah. Like oh, for Broadway? Um, or for movies, films? Movies, oh, film okay. junkets, yep. um, HBO specials, you know, cool. things like that. That's awesome. Um, he goes, you put everything up with magnets. The whole thing's, you know, it's metal. You put it, I was like, oh, that's so genius. You know, and it's so obvious. Right, right. it's so obvious. He goes, obvious, how right. do you think they get, I go, they're magnetic? Because <laughs> how do you think they get them on and off the ships? A giant magnet. I was like, I just, whatever. <laughs> I've actually never seen that done. I wouldn't have guessed that they were pulled off with a magnet. It's I figured it would have been like a huge a forklift or yeah, a crane or something like magnet. Yeah, interesting. And and probably a little. It's a big rectangular gripping. piece of steel. Yeah. So that's. I mean, yeah, it's obvious, right? So <laughs> obvious, we missed it. <laughs> Maybe it's a little bit of both. Yeah, yeah. You know, just in case the magnet gets a little tired or the, you know, crane gets a little tired. You mean it's a little, you know. But so, okay, so that basically gave you your micro dose of retail, mm. right? And running in, your own store yeah. out of this shipping container. Mm-hmm. So that was up until recently, right? Last year or something? Uh, yeah, I shut it down Christmas Eve. Yeah. Yeah. So last year. Went to Florida. Of course. <laughs> Snowbird. Snowbird. And... So what what brought you to this space? We're we're obviously in Bushwick. You're on a corner of Irving and uh, Hemrod. Hemrod. Yep. You're big, huge, almost like garage door type. Oh yeah, they're two glass facades. pane garage doors. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you find the space? What made you finally go over the ledge of no longer being in a shipping container let's like like give me a lease you know what i mean because that's a plunge to take right it is a plunge well i I like a working bathroom when you need one hey you know so i do was going to a lot of estate sales and tag sales and uh actually my first estate sale i came the year before I came back from Florida and I was going to a st- I started going to state sales in Florida. I came back to New York to buy stuff to open for spring. My first ever New York estate sale tag sale happened to be in the middle of where I live and where the market is to open my shipping container. I said, oh, great, it's on the way. I didn't have a car, so I took an Uber there. And it's this amazing, cute little one, this one room apartment. And it was of a fortune teller who had passed on, and it was, ama- it was magical. She had a, ma- and she she custom talk about your fingerprint. She customized everything she wore, everything that touched her, everything in her house. She she was she had trim and she she did everything. Um, 
and there was only one other person there buying things. I had a giant pile of the most amazing stuff. I, gra- I grabbed every handbag. There's only one other person shopping at the sale, which is unheard of in New York, especially in Brooklyn. Sure. And it was my boyfriend, Michael. We started seeing each other. So we met, we met at a tag sale, and I told him I did this. For a living. Fresh, you know, this outdoor market. Yeah. So he started coming around. Let me check out your market. And, you know, we started talking, and he's a walking encyclopedia of, so many different product categories. Oh, is that right? What? So, w- what is Michael's Genius. background? Oh, it's, we don't have enough time. <laughs> you know, but he comes from retail, or um, he had a retail store with a partner in Carroll Gardens a while ago. Um, sort of in the realm of like antiques, also meets like oddities and taxidermy. He was very good friends with the people that started the whole oddities thing in New York. It's been a lot of spinoffs. The original guy has since passed away, and now the oddities people—they—they um, they were friends. I don't know you know them in the East Village. I'm sure they had a well, TV show. Well, I know there's that that one store. I guess it's off Broadway. Evolution. It's like no, taxidermy. No, that's more like, like um, archa- uh, archaeological. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like more big historical. Words. Yeah. <laughs> these these multi-syllable words. Yeah, that's tough. Um, uh, no, it's more like. Um, like two-headed snake tax- taxidermy, like we- like weird medical abnormalities things. Yeah, I am not familiar. Really? No. Oh, it's amazing. Very um, not I'm not gonna say steampunk, but you know, kind of creepy. But like artistic and sort of yeah. I mean, no, just weird, just weird. Oh, just weird. <laughs> and they had a show. The you know they had a show now. It's called Oddities, and um, I'm spacing on the two people's the couple that have the show now but anyway he he was in on that whole scene sort of back in the day um so you guys sort of just connected based on his knowledge of all these things and then the fact that you were in the mix yeah like what do you you know he was feeling like maybe he wanted to get back into having the retail store and i wanted to expand my product offering and he knew about every product category you could imagine so uh that's really interesting because, yeah. I mean, obviously a lot of people would say that retail is dying, right? Like the brick and mortar retail is dying. What would provoke someone, let alone three people, to come together and say, you know what, we need to get into brick and mortar vintage retail? It's funny that you should say that because that was a very um, hot topic when yeah. we started talking about opening a store. Sure. Um, are we crazy? What are we doing? Brick and mortar, you know, stores are closing left and right. And if you at face value, yeah, stores are closing left and right. Um, I just knew there had to be a way to do it correctly. Um, I did like doing my pop-up. I thought pop-ups were the way to go and, you know, everything being very transitory and, you know, pop-up over here and pop-up over there and keeps it fresh. Um, But from doing the market, I had people coming back every week. And you, I would build relationships. They weren't, they're not necessarily coming to shop every time. They're just coming to say hi. Coming to hang out. And I feel like, you know, sometimes people are, Maybe lonely. Maybe they don't want to hang out with the rest of their friends that they're used to hanging out with. They want to hear just 
be with someone new. Uh, I would introduce them to other people that would come by just to say hi, and they would get into talking, and they would learn something, and then they would become friendly. And it was that human connection. It's that third place theory. Exactly. So I thought if we do, when we do find a place that we could do a brick and mortar, we need, we need to make it a place where people can come together. So we wanted a, a meeting place where people can come together and meet each other and sort of you know, get to know each other, sure. network, yeah. see what's going on around town. You know, maybe somebody needs a job. Um, people come in all the time looking for work. And I say, oh, you know, I know that the coffee place up the road is looking for help. Um, a lot of people just move into the neighborhood. They don't know where to go, like a good bar or the best pizza or the best Chinese food. So right, right. we liked having the thought of having a place where people could come and sort of like, you know, a communal cool place that people could get together and meet each other so one part sales one part concierge exactly (laughs) (laughs) for bushwick exactly that's cool yeah so how do you guys like how do you go about picking things like what what does your buy look like like it's obviously not the traditional wholesale buy uh where you go to trade shows and you do that so like no absolutely completely different beasts so what's that like um well, as we, as I said, how we met one of our our partners is he he hosts estate sales and tag sales, and we've hosted estate and tag sales ourselves. So we would we would go to his sales when I was doing the market, the the open air market in the container, and uh, he would say to us, you know, how's business, cat? And I said, well, great. You know, if it stopped raining or it wasn't snowing, and I could open up seven days a week, it'd be great. And he said, you should get a store. So that's how. We, we ended up roping him in because we were thinking about doing it ourselves just as two people. And then we were like, Oh, this guy wants to have a store too. Um, so we buy mostly from estate sales, other people's estate sales and tag sales. And then, you know, our partner has, and we've hosted estate sales and tag sales. And we, we see a lot of interesting homes, you know, hoarders, hoarders houses, not hoarders houses, clean houses, very wealthy houses. Uh, I mean, you name it. We've we've seen it. You know, I, sometimes, you know, garments are in a beautiful cedar closet, pristine, and sometimes in, like, very dank basements where you just have to, you know, or garages that you need to really launder them, you know, clothes and iron them and launder them and steam them and, Sometimes it's not it's not very glamorous. Right, right. Yeah. So it's really interesting because like when you're going through this sort of process, like you're not doing the traditional seasonal buy. So like how do you know like how do you determine what the not we don't have to talk money obviously, but like how do you determine like a budget? Like how do you how do you know when to stop buying and when to you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like I it may it might just be a, a really dumb question because you're like, well, when I run out of money, I stop buying, you know, but, but on the same note, it's like, it's not the traditional buy because opening up this, you know, you're, you're talking sales projections or hopeful anyway. Right? right. So like, I'm just trying to wrap my head around what it's like to do like a vintage store like this. 
it's not knowing what you're getting into. Like maybe there's a drought where you don't find anything you love. Well, right? exactly. So it's it's very catch as catch can. Um, it's it's it can be quite organic, you know. Um, it's very hard to pass up on things that you see that a lot of times you could just go by gut instinct. What It's what you like or also what you think, you know, trend-wise can work for people. Um, you know, you have storage spaces that you got to pack stuff into. Um, you're not always going to see a pristine piece of Danish mid-century modern, you know, credenza or a bar. You know, so you kind of have to jump on it when you see it right. and hope, A, that you have the space for it, B, you know, it's going to sell quickly. Um, you could come into our store any given week and it's going to look completely different. That's kind of why we set up the store the way we did, where all along the one wall, there's like the clothes and we built this shelving unit for accessories and knickknacks and housewares. That's easy to change. But as far as the furniture and all the decor goes, we wanted to set up little vignettes. Right. We have rattan, a rattan wall unit with, you know, glassware on it next to a mid-century modern bar next to, you know, this crazy, I don't even know, psychedelic couch kind of thing. <laughs> and then we have an orange couch back there. We made a little library. I like, I like the, the little vignettes and I like that it's constantly a work in progress. Sure. It keeps it exciting for us keeps it exciting for the customer so it's just uh how you buy is just you know a lot of it's gut instinct it's hard to walk away from when you see something that's amazing and if you can negotiate a good price we've been fortunate people that we buy from they're really excited because they they've seen what we've been buying for a while and they're like oh they know right right they, they, they see how we pick things we won't pick things we choose things that other people don't choose there's competition out there and it's it's getting serious but you know at these sales everyone's out you know there's the guys that buy just military there's guys that just buy the baseball stuff uh ephemera um we buy a lot of different product categories so there's we have an advantage because most of these people go solo whereas michael and i we tag team we look at the preview pictures and then all right you go to the basement and you know and I'm going to go to the attic. Divide and conquer. We totally divide and yeah. conquer. So, so that's do you ever run into the the situation where you, you don't want to sell it? Like you're buying stuff and you just fall in love with it and you're just like, oh my God, I just need this for myself. Not actually, no. Not really. There was there was only one house where this uh, a lady, her, her mom had passed away and she her taste and my taste apparently were very similar and so a lot of times i try stuff on to see how it fits clothing wise obviously i try stuff on so i could tell the customer like oh it's kind of cut like this right um and everything that i tried on that belonged to this woman was my style and fit me like it was tailored for me and i sent the lady the, the you know the daughter pictures and I said, oh, my gosh, this it's like made for me. And she was really happy. I started doing that, communicating with a lot of the family members that of these houses that I go to. I'll take pictures of my customers that have the stuff on. Like back in the when I had the container and it would just make everyone feel happy. Like, sure. oh, my, my like my, it's my, found a home. My, exactly. Right. Oh, was that my mom's favorite dress that she wore to this Christmas banquet or something, you know? 
Um, so it was just that one time that I wanted to keep. I have one. I kept one chest. One? Yeah, I think I'm only one. Yeah. But most of the time, no. I'm, I'm good to, like, see what's next. So one thing I ask everybody is is kind of like, what was what was sort of the what hardest? What were you thinking? Right, yeah. No, but, like, what's been the hardest part of starting the business? The starting or being in the starting part? Well, so like, both? literally the starting no, part. No, take your shot. Like, either one. There's just so many, so many details that you have to oversee. Um, you should be involved in. We were, we weren't responsible for the renovation, but our landlord is amazing. And since we came in pre or, or, or kind of mid renovation, we had a lot of input. Um, so we, because he allowed us to have some input, we were overseeing how things were getting done and because let's say you weren't paying for it you can't you don't really have a lot of say like okay there were floor there's flooring he ripped the flooring up we thought the subfloor was going to be fine it wasn't so he said go pick out some floor within reason so i came in to see how it was coming along and they laid the floor planks in completely the opposite direction that you were envisioning okay and we needed to get the floor done so we get everything else done so i almost lost it but they had their reasons of the the way the the support beams were laid out and everything. And then stuff was scratched. I mean, just so many details that y you just have to keep your eye on. Like, um, it's, it's spinning plates. It's it's like spinning 100 plates. And a lot of stuff is beyond your control. And some stuff you just have to say, I, I got to let that go. You know, scratches in a brand new floor that there didn't need to be there. But there they are. What do you, can you lay down a whole new floor? Can you wait two more weeks? No. So you just kind of got to say, all right, <laughs> I got to, I got to see past. I just got to move on. There'll be, I'll put a couch on top of it. Yeah. You'll never see it. So stuff like that. Well, what's been like the easiest part? Like what have been some of the easier moments? Having it materialize how pretty much how I envisioned it, 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 it pretty Although there were some kinks and, you know, there's things that you need to see past. It's, I pretty easily envisioned just about. So the merchandising. The whole, the whole layout. The layout, The whole setup, yeah. the vignettes. Like for me and, you know, thankfully partners have the same vision and can visualize it and imagine it. Yeah. Without, you know, having them doubt you the entire way. So that when it came time to actually physically do it. It's just like, okay, go. Like, let's do it. We're all on the same page. Sort of pseudo without speaking. Sure. Like, let's just all get this done. Right. So that was pretty, that was pretty smooth. And I'm really happy the way it turned out. That's that awesome. There's almost nothing. I'm, I'm looking around. Right, There right. is a red spot on that wall from when they painted the, uh, the fire sprinkle, the sprinkler pipes. But I'm going to hit that up real soon. Like paint. Okay, so Michael did, my one partner, Michael, was a... Uh, master craftsman and made cabinets and built lots of things so we actually have clay paint up on the wall okay um so it's low fume um it it, it absorbs and neutralizes and equalizes i don't even know all the particulars about it but it's like special ordered paint that interesting totally green easy to clean up no and didn't smell at all um 
you know, he, we worked really well together and our landlord was really, really open, loves the fact that we restored it. This building's 1800, uh, late 1800, early 1900s, uh, former sewing factory, oh, sewing cool. needle factory. Um, then it was a church for a little while, so, and he's really into old things, and so he stripped the facade and we started doing some of the decorative painting. We still have a little bit more to do to bring this building back. But um, I think the part, yeah, the, the landlords and the partners and the build-out has been pretty smooth. Kinks, That's awesome. You know, yeah, sure. I mean, everything's going to have pluses and minuses, but... Yeah, you know. So, like, what, what bits of advice would you give somebody trying to start a vintage store? Oh, uh, boy. Uh, definitely know your customer. Figure out who you want who your target customer is where you are because it could change pretty drastically from one part of town to the next um so how do you define that for you guys like who's your customer for example well according to instagram and your insights that you can see as a business instagram profile uh we are 60 percent female 40 percent male I actually thought it wouldn't I thought there would be a little higher. I think our customer sales wise it's a little different, but our following is uh eighteen to thirty five. Um not everyone's originally from this neighborhood. There are some some locals, a lot of newbies, um young professionals, a lot of artistic kids. Not like I said, over one block one avenue over and three blocks down, it was a different, I felt like it was a different demographic. A lot funkier, a lot, lot more outrageous. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess part of that's New York, right? That's Brooklyn. Totally. Because it, yeah. the neighborhoods change so drastically in such a short distance. Completely, yeah. Whereas, like, if you're in Iowa or <laughs> somewhere, like, your, your demographics probably are not changing that. <laughs> for like a no disrespect mile, to Iowa, obviously. fifty mile radius. It's yeah, pretty much right, locked right, down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, cool. So I feel like I have. I think over there, when in the market, I was more like, there's, and I still have some. I still have some here, like the bright colored, like the the retro, let's say, golden girl nylon color blocked. Sure. Jump, you know, jogger suits. Yeah. There's still call for that here. And we're only six blocks away. Um, now I feel like I'm selling much more. And I sold much more true. I sold true 50, 40s, 50s, mm -hmm. 70s vintage over there. But over here, I feel like it's a little bit more. Gotcha. Um, I think they're more like young professional, more little. I'm not going to say conservative. Maybe a little bit more conservative. Right. Uh, you know, maybe we're going from like. But like, the nth like, degree extreme, not conservative to just a little not conservative. But yeah. like maybe the folks that are actually wearing these day in, day out oh, type of sure. thing as opposed to like special events or costume party or something that's like vintage inspired or. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And some, it's funny that you said that because somebody was asking, oh, so what's your store like? You know, we've been doing, being interviewed for different podcasts and things around Bush, Bushwick specific podcasts. Sure. Yep. And blogs and things and and I said without trying to sound corny, I said it's trying to be we we want to be like a vintage lifestyle 
for lack of better example, like an Urban Outfitters has such a diverse product category, uh, sure. diversity. So that's what we're trying to do. Just be, it, it's, it is a vintage lifestyle. Yep. And that culturally is becoming more and more popular. That's why mid-century modern furniture is so popular. It's huge. Right. It's almost, some people are saying it's starting its downturn. Really? And then, so what's next? Yeah. Um, 80s, white and pink for mica. Well, I know like Art Deco's huge right now. Like, as opposed Where? to like modern stuff. Like, <laughs> you know, the whole like brass fittings on things and like gold mixed with blacks and like those kind of color stories as opposed to like. Which also got kind of kind of big in the 80s as well oh sure sure a little bit so yeah. maybe that is that is uh, the arc but what's also interesting about a store like this is that like i feel like if you collect things like this is kind of one of those havens where you you've got lighters for example right and like vintage lighters are highly collectible in fact i just interviewed somebody who collects vintage lighters oh really and you know if if you have the right ones, you know, somebody might not walk out with just one. They might walk out with six. If you have the right one. So, like, do right. you collect anything yourself? Like, are you into anything specific like that? No. You don't collect anything? I don't think so. No. I guess if I had a very large apartment, I may. So you're, you're, you're constrained by space. I would like... I, I like a very simple living environment I, I don't always get to achieve that but now that i have a store in a storeroom well i was good yeah but i mean the <laughs> store is the antithesis of like minimalism <laughs> right so but it's not too crazy is it right at least there's some is there no some no, order? no 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 it's it, yeah order no there's it. order it's very shoppable and all the rest of that but like but it's not minimal if you were a minimalist at home coming in here would would not be minimalist <laughs> yeah no no but no i don't know I don't, I don't so, think, yeah, I don't like to collect, I don't really collect anything. Well, shoes, say, maybe shoes. Uh, shoes? I like yeah, shoes a you're lot. you into shoes. <laughs> That's cool. So what's a typical day like for you here? In, in the business in general? In the business in general? I mean, I, I, lately I've been putting things in terms of like before the store, pre-store opening, uh, end store opening, which only has been, you know, a few short short amount of time that we've been open um but a lot of it is still trying to make sure you have the right inventory you know looking around talking to people we went to go see a guy who he's been in the business a long time he's antiques and vintage and then he he took it to the next level he had so much stuff and he would buy amazing things that he started working with like a lot of production houses marvel you know netflix and and he needs to get out of a 4,000 square foot warehouse and he called us and said come look at it and name give us a price for everything wow yeah that's what we said um, and interestingly enough we had met him because we had gone to an estate sale and they had probably 25 huge pieces of taxidermy wow. huge like rugs or no goats uh, he had a whole goat, a whole white goat. Like on a standing. Rock. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, on a rock. Huge moose head. And it wasn't, it was in one small room. Huge. 
deer, moose, the whole thing. And so we made some phone calls and uh, we found someone that wanted to buy it. So basically we flipped it. And this guy that has this big warehouse, he ended up buying a bunch of them. Except that, that, that lamp, we decided to keep that one lamp with the feet. Right. <laughs> the hoof. Okay, gotcha. And there's, a, there's one, another piece over there. Um, so that's how we ended up meeting him. Like, point being is, you never know what your day is going to be like. Yeah. You could be flipping 14 pieces of tax jeremy one day. You could be doing 20 pounds of laundry the next day. Hustling. We sorted through 85 garbage bags full, like contractor garbage bags full of like a buy that we did that you just have to, you know, sort of a side on. You see some preview fi- pictures about what's in there. You name your price. You got to sort through it all. Not all of it was great. Some of it was great. Like any given day is completely different. Wow. Yeah. Well, that got, I mean, that's got to keep it exciting, right? I love it. That's I, awesome. I don't, monotony. Don't not, do it. Not my. Can't can't do it. Not my not my thing. Won't do it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what. Even in, I mean, even in corporate America, you know, some certain days are challenge, more challenging than others. But generally speaking, you know, there's the sales meeting on the Monday and the uh, planning meeting on the Tuesday. That not for me. Mm-mm. I can do it, but I never really liked it. Right. Yeah. I never really liked it. So well, you is, had enough experience doing that to yeah, know that I, you don't like it. I, I think I did my time. I did my time. This is way better. So Every day is different. What's next then? What's next then? Is it just grow the business? Is it grow the assortment? Is it open a different location? Is it like what? What's like kind of the future goal? I wouldn't mind working with TV and production people. Um, For like wardrobing. Wardrobing or set design, set design or something. Yeah. I've been meeting people that do staging for real estate. It's New York. Sure. There's a high turnover of real estate here and there. So some people have approached us. These are great pieces. Can we borrow them? Can we rent them to do staging with? Yeah. Um, That's outside the know. box. That's cool. Yeah. Maybe we open We open in other cities. Um, there's, a, there's one chain. I don't know how big they are, but there's this. Do you guys have it anywhere else called Flamingo? Flamingo Vintage? If, if it exists, I, I haven't heard of it. It's a by-the-pound place. Oh, okay. Um, a thousand plaid flannel shirts. <laughs> a thousand black rock t-shirts. You know what I mean? It's it's quantity, not quality. I'm not going to say it's bad quality, but it's quantity. It's by the pound, obviously. Sure, yeah, of course. Yep. And they've been placing ads all over the town. They basically will give, they give people money to start. They'll give them the inventory, and they'll give them startup money to start a store in no a neighborhood. Yeah, they've been popping up all over. Um, we could franchise. I don't mind. <laughs> you never franchise. know. I would like to support people that upcycle. Uh, Stefan, who I was working with at AX, I have some of his pieces here. He's upcycled some amazing suit vests, amazing denim. Like he's into the whole recycling and upcycling of things too. The whole thing is we don't want stuff to end up in a landfill. Sure. You know, this credenza could be in a landfill. These shirts and shoes could be in a landfill. Like it, it just doesn't need to be. Right. So if there's people out there that are being creative and upcycling stuff to make something cool out of it and keep it out of a landfill, I'm all for it. We don't really do consignment. I just have a couple of pieces of his. Um, but I wouldn't mind expanding that that business 
Sure. Yeah, helping helping people get started being designers and creative and upcycle. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, you know. Well, is there anything else you'd want to promote? What's the Instagram for you guys? It's Brooklyn Vintage Company. All spelled uh, out. All spelled out. Does a nice, nice couple of pictures of our beautiful facade, which is almost done being restored. Um, we post new stuff all the time. We get called out. You know, hold it for me. I'll be right there. So if there's now, are you guys there, online too? Then or no? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. So that's maybe a future goal to build like kind of an online feature. Yeah, it can. We we can do some e-commerce. Things move very quickly. So Instagram is so fast, you know, and not to say that putting things online doesn't need to be slow, a slow process necessarily. Instagram is really fast. And so, and that's what we need to do. Our whole thing is, you know, we're really great prices flow through a lot of different merchandise, keep people coming back, keep it reasonably priced and, uh, it's gotta move, kinda keep it moving. That's awesome. So we, we almost sold the couch you were sitting on not that long right, ago. Right. Yeah. <laughs> We almost sitting on the floor. Yeah, that absolutely. That carpet is for sale too. By yeah. the way. Okay. <laughs> it is Everything's for sale. It, it's not nailed down. That's awesome. Yep. Well, Kat, I really do appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. For Thank coming you for out to Brooklyn. allowing me to sit on this almost sold couch. Almost sold. That guy's coming back. I'm pretty sure. Oh, he's coming back. He's gonna. I have to visit it. It is a beautiful couch. Thank you for coming out to see me. Yeah, of course. Well, so. uh, let's maybe grab a drink in a couple nights or so. For sure. Okay. Let's go. All right. I'll see you then. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Just want to say thanks again to Kat for taking the time and having me in her new store. Uh, super exciting stuff going on in Bushwick. Uh, be sure to reach out for my next trip to New York, Kat. Thanks again. This episode has been brought to you by Clear Audio, C-L-E-E-R audio.com. Music provided by the talented Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful. And until next time, this is Wesley Smith for Standard H. Thanks so much for listening.